pray. Father, there is no uh, other person we want to give glory to. No, n- n- not that we, we should not. We don't want to. We want the laser, which it has been, the laser to be focused right now on your glory. Everything good in our life flowing out of your glorious, bountiful, generous, forgiving, merciful, holy, just, righteous, atoning hand. All glory to your name. Father, thank you for assembling us together so that we could hear each other sing, that we could be helped. Lord, I don't know who you brought here today, what they're dealing with. But I pray already, Father, thank you that you have helped them sing, even if they couldn't as they heard others sing. I pray today, Lord, that they they will understand their purpose in life is to enjoy your glory. Swim in it. Live for it. Thank You for it. Help them to see the glory of Your grace, the glory of Your kindness, the glory of Your patient waiting, the glory of Your willing forgiveness. May they see You. Father, I now give You uh, my my tongue, uh, my mind, and their ears and their hearts. And would you please increase our joy as we see your exceedingly good glory. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. I have never personally known a gladiator, but they seem to be impressive individuals. Uh, They are competent, from what I can tell, strong, fearless, and highly motivated. It seems like it would be cool to be a gladiator. Uh, You get to uh, entertain crowds and uh, have a big sword that you can even take on airplanes and wear metal clothing that makes your physique look great. I think there's a downside, however, to being a gladiator. I mean, if you have a good day at the office, you get to go home and tell your wife about the matches you won. If you have a bad day at the office, you don't go home. (laughs) Last Sunday, we began looking at a passage of Scripture where we saw gladiator type of strength in the heart of a man of God. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 16, 13, and 14, five challenges. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, and do everything in love. So I used that passage last week because I wanted to have something that would help me speak to men, to fathers on on Father's Day. But if anybody was here, they would admit the Word of God does what it always does. It doesn't apply just to one group of people. If you were hungry for the Lord, wanted to be strong for Him, that verse would have done it. But no doubt about it, it does have a masculine flavor about it. But for any woman who wants to be a strong one of the Lord, it would work for her as well. We said last week that the reason that the passage sort of surprises us is the way it ends. You have four quick military-like commands that are strong, and then at the end, where we're going to focus today, 
is more of an older man at the end of his life putting his arm around a young guy saying, make sure in all of your battles, do everything in love. We spent a lot of time on verses 13 uh, last week, and so I don't want to spend too much time, but I think it will help create some momentum if I, I go back just a little bit. Be on your guard. Just a reminder that you are always going to be vulnerable to sin. Always vulnerable. Praise God for the seasons of life. And I know you've experienced them if you've been a believer. Praise God for the seasons of life where God just brings relief from temptation. You know, you're not simmering. Uh, and then he, he lifts it. And, I, and I, I tell you, if you think that defeating sin is impossible, all of us have been in seasons where we were simmering, we were we were hotter than we wanted to be toward temptation. And we prayed, resisted the devil, James 4, 7, and he did flee. What we need to understand, though, he is always coming back. And he's going to come back with more, and he's going to come back with different. So be vulnerable, because there's always a host of temptations that can stop you from running your race for the Lord. Secondly, we saw last week, stand firm in the faith. No, how mu- no matter how much you're watching and you know, expecting Him to come. If you're not standing on something that cannot be moved, you will be moved. <laughs> you got to look for something that's immovable to stand on if you don't want to move, not be shaken. The firm foundation that Paul says you need to stand on, he calls it the faith. Anytime Paul puts those two words together in the New Testament, the faith, he's talking about this core belief that we embrace, we sing about, but not, not some cold, dead, meaningless, boring, yawn, yawn, religious dogma that never leaves your head. He's talking about the living rock of biblical truth all about Jesus Christ. We would summarize the faith like this. This is the faith. Jesus is the Son of God and Creator of the world, who became a man for the purpose of dying on a cross to absorb our guilt into his body that he suffered for. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit to fill our bodies that we might have a relationship with God. That's what you call the faith. That's, you never leave that. You plant your feet there. You plant your joy there. You plant your hope there. And every day, like the song says, you say, thank you, Jesus for saving my life. If you plant your feet anywhere else, you're going to fall because you're planting your feet on something that's moving. There's only one thing that never moves. And that is the story, the rock of Jesus Christ. If you plant your feet anywhere else other than Him, you'll be like those, the, the residents of the Champlain Towers in Surfside, Florida earlier this week. One day they felt they were on a solid foundation in the next 164 individuals probably have lost their life. Their foundation was not as strong. You may feel like what you're standing on now will hold you. It, it won't. If we're going to stand firm when the world is shaking, and it appears that it's shaking more than ever, you stand on the faith. Each morning when you get out of bed, right after your eyes open, you roll out, and you kneel on the living rock of Christ. Just begin your day by saying, thank you. The degree to which you enjoy God is the degree to which you will defeat sin. 
to live for enjoying the faith. Third, we saw last week and review a little bit now, be men of courage. Courage is simply doing what is right even when everybody else is doing wrong. Unless God is the true source of your strength and your joy, you'll not have the courage to swim upstream when the majority of the world is floating downstream laughing at you as you swim against the current. You will not be a person of courage. The only man who doesn't feel the pull of culture is the man who's already floating with it. You say, I don't feel much temptation because you're already given into it. That's why you don't feel its pull. Fourth, be strong. Or as we saw last week, it's a passive verb, which means to let God strengthen you. Christianity is not a willpower religion. You are not as strong as the devil is strong. He is stronger than you on your own. So you let God strengthen you. I was reading this week in Revelation chapter 12, that interesting description of Satan that John gives in the last book of the Bible. Revelation 12, 7, then war broke out in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole, that's powerful here, there's a lot of influence, who leads the whole world astray, and he was hurled to earth. I suppose John used a reference to Satan as the dragon because we normally uh, think of dragons as fierce uh, and strong. I Just for the fun of it this week, I googled, are dragons strong? This is the promise you. This is the first answer I got. I'll just read it to you. Dragons are among the most powerful creatures on earth. Due to their giant size, dragons can fly, breathe fire, and are extremely powerful, strong, and intelligent creatures. I didn't know that. Dragons also have deadly poisons in their teeth and claws. I didn't know that either. So I still don't know a lot about dragons. But I do know a lot about the devil. And he is incredibly strong. And unless you let God strengthen you daily, you're going to fall. Just open your life to his strength. I uh, was talking with a man at our church not too long ago. I really love this. I appreciate this. He said, I've never had an opportunity to tell you, but I, I have a specific verse I want you to preach at my funeral when I die. And I said, well, please, please share that. He, and he shared it. He said, it's Galatians 2.20. He said, this is my life verse. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Then he proceeded to tell me, he said, here's why I want you to preach that verse. I have family members that still don't know the Lord. I have people at my business that still don't know the Lord. And when they come to my funeral, I want you to make sure once again you tell them why I was different. It was not because of me. I don't have any power. It's because I died one day and Christ lives in me. I owe everything to Christ who gave Himself for me, gave Himself to me. This brings us to our fifth 
charge in our original verse from last week and this week, do everything in, in love. You know, there's a, if we were to restate these five charges in our, our current, our, using our, our vernacular of today, I think it would sound, this is the summary of what Paul has said here. The enemy is coming, watch for him. The enemy is near, prepare to do battle. The enemy is threatening, stand firm. The enemy has engaged you, be strong. And then we come to today's verse. Don't become like the enemy. Be loving. Or do everything in, in love. Some guys, when they get to verse 14, sort of feel let down because they were waiting for some big assignment. A uh, gladiator type, you know, enormous challenge, hard task. They like words like standing and fighting. And then all of a sudden, they get this call to be loving. And they think they sort of like, uh, you know, they sort of feel like that the, the rest of the platoon got an assignment to go out into the battlefield and they were left to stay in the camp and care for the sick. They wanted to be warriors. And to some, this may sound like a call to weakness. But let me tell you something. For anybody who is self-aware, the hardest thing to do in life is love when you find it difficult to to love. It's easier to build a weapon of mass destruction sometimes than it is to love a coworker at your office or a family member. It's easier to be destructive than restorative. Loving people is the hardest thing you will ever do, and therefore it can only be done by the strongest people. If I were to name one of my favorite strong people, Right now, I would go to the sports world and pick the name of Coach John uh, Wooden. He, um, he went to UCLA in 1948, and from 1964 to 1975, led the Bruins uh, basketball, led the Bruins basketball team in uh, 10 NCAA championships. Seven of them consecutively. Without question, Wooden ran his basketball program with a gladiator type of discipline. Many people miss this because, he was, because of his demeanor on the sidelines during the game. And when he was asked about coaches who screamed during the game, his reply would be, well, what did he do during practice? That's when you do your screaming. Practices were everything for Wooden. They were brutal because he wanted to make his players the best they could be. He never talked to his players about winning. He just said, give me your best. The rest will take care of itself. He was a meticulous coach. At the beginning of every season, the first lesson that he taught players was how to put on their socks. Because he said, if you get blisters, you will miss games and the team will suffer for it. He was the boss, and things were to be done his way. Not because he was an egomaniac, but because he wanted uniformity in the team. 
At the beginning of one practice, the beginning of the season, Bill Walton showed up with a red beard ready to play for a coach who did not allow facial hair. He told Wooden it was his right to have a beard. Wooden replied, I admire people who have strong beliefs and stick by them. We're going to miss you. John Wooden was a great coach, but what made him a great man is because of the love that people knew was in his heart. He loved his players. He said, if you want to have a great team, then love your players. Even at the end of his life, he could still, of the 180 players that he coached, he could tell you the activities, successes, and pursuits of 172 of them. He loved his wife. Nell Wooden was the only girl John Wooden ever dated. In 1927, when they were juniors in high school, they were baptized together. And they were married for 53 years. In his bedroom, he had two clocks that were wrong. The the time was wrong. Because he left them set to the time of day in which Nell died on April on March March 21st 1985 when coach Wooden died family came in to that bedroom and found 250 sealed letters wrapped in yellow ribbons that he had written to his wife after she died he wrote to her on March 21st every year I mean on the 21st every month on the 21st of every month, she died on March 21st, on the 21st of every month, he wrote her a letter, 250 letters, telling her how much he loved her. Finally, John wouldn't love the Lord. From the lips of the greatest coach of all times comes these moving words. I've always tried to make it clear that basketball is not the ultimate. It is of small importance in comparison to the total life we live. There's only one kind of life that truly wins, and that is the one that places faith in the hands of the Savior. John Wooden placed a copy of the Bible in every room in his house. Not surprising, his favorite chapter was the familiar 1 Corinthians 13, one that is tempting to overlook because it's used a lot, weddings and etc. But I think if it's heard, read rightly, you see how beautiful it is again to love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am an irritating symbol. That's amazing. If I give all I possess to the poor, think about that, that's all your money. If I give all I possess to the poor, even surrender my body to the flames as a martyr for Christ, but have not love, at the end of my life, is a big zero. It's that important. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. 
It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. If you ask the world what love is, on a good day, I think the world could manufacture this definition. Love is concern and affection that moves you to help others. That's a, it's a good definition. It's just incomplete. Biblical definition would be Love is concern and affection that moves you to help others because God's concern and affection moved Him to help you. So true love is based on the motivation of what God has done for you. And we saw that a few weeks ago in Ephesians 4 as chapter 4 ended and chapter 5 began. Be compassionate or be kind. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ God forgave you, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. These chapters just ooze with tenderness, kindness, compassion, sympathy, love, all flowing from the heart of God. And the Bible says, at, in the middle of that, you're called to imitate that. Everything you see in those verses. His love, His kindness, His compassion, His sympathy. To mimic it, really mimitate. To do whatever you see Him doing, mimic it in the way you love people. If you're in love with a baby, and many of us in this room are, I don't know where you are in your baby love, but whether you're a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, one of the things that thrills you is they begin to mimic you. And it's amazing, little talented creatures begin pretty early on. The first thing is facial recognition that they can do. That you can look and the more you smile at them, you could prompt them. They mimic your smile. A few months down the road, you get a little bit more ambitious to teach them something and you spend weeks and weeks and weeks and you want them to clap. And then one day, you're with them, and they clap, and you go running down the hall to find somebody because your child is brilliant. Because they're mimicking you. Right now, in our life, we're working on our grandson learning how to play peekaboo. So, so we, you know, we play, we say, peekaboo, we cover our eyes with our hands, open our Hands up, peekaboo. We laugh, he laughs, and then he puts his hands on top of his head and starts laughing. Peekaboo. That's where he is. Almost. Almost mimicking us. Almost. Almost. Child of God, if there's any place in life where you are called to imitate your heavenly Father, it is love, tenderness, sympathy, kindness, compassion. That's day one in the school of Christ. Be loving. And if there's anybody that should ever be 
oozing with love, it would be those of us who have received the kindness and compassion and sympathy and tenderness of God. If anybody should be the most loving people on earth, it should be those in this room. This is not an abstract verse. This is the easier part of Ephesians. Just, you've labored with me through it. This is not doctrinally challenging. This is not confusing. There's no debate here. Live a life of love as you have been loved. And not only is it um, love is sympathetic, as we see here, but true love is sacrificial. Verse 2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here's the source and motivation of love. For God so loved the world, He gave. For Christ so loved the world, He gave. We give because the Father and the Son and the Spirit give. There is nothing that God would not have given in order to remove your sin. Because He did. He said, I'm willing to give anything. My best. And He did. Just like the song that the band sang that you sang so very well at the end, and I just want to grab a few lyrics out of it. Glad the band's not singing again because I'm, I would confuse them because I'm leaving a lot out to get to the main points. But I love those lyrics. I remember who I was. I was lost, I was blind, I was running out of time. Sin separated, the breach was far too wide, so you made a way across the great divide. Left behind heaven's throne, at the cross you paid the debt I owed. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life. That's what changed the heart of the Apostle Paul. He just every day saying, thank you, Jesus, you've saved my life. And he became radically giving to a world that needed love. You remember those realities Christ giving to you? You'll be a fountain of giving the rest of your life. Nothing will touch people more deeply than the love of God flowing out of your life. As we move toward the end of history, however, the Bible says people will love less and less. People within society will look at God less and less. They will look at the cross less and less. And the uh, result of that will be catastrophic. They will love each other less and less. Matthew 24, verse 14, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's in the middle of one of the most intense eschatological chapters in the New Testament talking about the end of times. That's a sobering warning of where culture is, is headed. Unloving and unloving culture. Because people are worshiping themselves instead of Jesus. They become unloving. The driving force in the world today is the idolatry of self-importance. That's why our culture is 
is a taking culture instead of a giving culture. Your joy is important, but it's not more important than the joy of others. If my focus is self-importance, my response will not be self-sacrifice. Jesus was eternally important, yet chose a life of self-sacrifice. Yet we who are eternally dependent choose a life of self-importance. That's not loving. The more you look at the sacrifice of Christ, the more you will sacrifice like Christ. But when you forget His self-giving, you will exalt self-importance. One of the reasons I love the story of John Wooden so much is because he was not a self-exalting person. All that time coaching college athletics and with all of you know, his wins, the most he ever made in one year was $32,500. And he resisted all offers for commercial endorsements because he said, I can't sleep at night if I don't know what I endorsed. Despite his fame, he continued to live in a 700 square foot condo in Encino, California. He did not think the world owed him great things. In fact, for many years, prior to um, team practice, Coach Wooden would be the first one to show up and clean, clean the gym floor. Rick Riley, one of our favorite sports illustrator writers, said, this is what made him so unusually attractive. He lived right in the middle of Hollywood, and he was the most selfless person in the middle of the most self-obsessed city in the world. Later this week, Two of our women from our church are going to GSP and boarding a plane and flying to the Middle East to partner with one of our, uh, our churches there uh, that specializes in providing aid for Muslim refugees who primarily have fled uh, Syria because of the war. Uh, Civil war has taken everything from them except their lives. Um, so in a moment, I want to pray for them. Not on stage, just sort of help protect their security. Won't bring them here, but pray for them. But before I do, I want to tell you, I want you to get the heart, not just their heart, but the heart of the church they're going to. I wrote one of them this week and said, uh, would you please you know, just tell me, so I could tell the church, why are you going? And what is it about the ministry there, the church there? Why are you going? She sent back a voicemail. It was so beautiful, I transcribed it. I just got to read it to you. You'll see her heart. She said, I've never seen the love of God for disenfranchised people displayed in a more beautiful way. I don't think we have a true picture here in the U.S. 
of what it's like to be displaced from your country because of war. Being forced to leave only with the clothes on your back and to go live in a refugee camp. Your family might be with you or they might be living in another location. And you are entering a city that doesn't really want you there. But you have nowhere else to go and you need help. And the church we partner with in this city opens its doors to these who have no home and lends its ears to those who have no voice. To these vulnerable families, especially to undervalued women and overwhelmed children, the church shows the kindness of God by first meeting their basic needs. Like Jesus, they minister to the whole person, soul and body. These Christians have no hesitation to give anything they have to serve these whom the world would describe as the least of these. Women are taught skills so they can provide for their family. Many of them are either widowed or their husbands have left them. Children are provided an education, and in time they are also trained in a practical skill that they can one day take to the workplace. And special attention is given to a group of children that are typically not honored in that culture, those with special needs. Our partner church is constantly praying for any opportunity to share the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. These opportunities are created as believers go into the homes of these Muslim refugees rather than expecting them to come to a Christian church. Nothing conveys God's kindness by sitting in somebody's home, hearing their story, weeping with them and rejoicing with them all under the banner of the love of Christ. This is the way that Muslims will come to Christ. For this is the way that all of us come to Christ as the Bible says in Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that leads us all to repentance. Let's pray. Father, that's what you've always done in my life. I returned to sin. I believed the lie that for that moment it was better. Guilt was soon uh, present. And at that very moment, in your kindness, all you said was, come and confess it. Come back and confess it. And there I was, forgiven. Purity restored, joy renewed. And it was your kindness, O oh God, that led me to once again hate my sin, love my Savior, your kindness. Father, today we are the recipients of kindness and sympathy and tenderness and concern, all flowing from your love from your heart, O oh God. And we thank you as a church that we are allowed to send these two women, these two sisters, far across the world to this city, to those refugees, to those church members, to those homes, to hear stories and to love to share truth, 
to be able to say to those who cry, there is eternal hope. To those who feel forgotten, to tell them, there's a God who sees. God, may it be their best trip. May it be this church's best trip ever. Ever. May the love of God in those homes be thick with delicious joy. Irresistible joy. May these precious Muslims, men, women, and children, may they come to Christ, turning from that which is not a true foundation, not able to support them when they stand before the living God one day, not able to provide them now with joy and peace. May they turn to Christ, the living, loving rock of Jesus. So we send our sisters out. We pray for safe travels, great health, a double anointing of the Holy Spirit, new wisdom when it's time to speak, new dose of empathy when it's time to listen. And we go with them from this place to our world, to our home, to our workplace, to our neighborhood. Please give us another opportunity to be sympathetic, kind, loving to this world in need. In Jesus' name, amen.